You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. In 1969, the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, called the Black Panthers the greatest threat to the internal security of the country. Was it because they carried guns? Nope. Was it because they stood up against police brutality? Nah. The reason why Hoover was so worried was because the Panthers were serving free breakfast to hungry kids. In a memo that went to FBI offices coast to coast, Hoover wrote, The Breakfast for Children program represents the best and most influential activity going for the Black Panther Party, and as such, is potentially the greatest threat to efforts by authorities to neutralize the Black Panther Party and destroy what it stands for. This is the woman who took the Panthers' plan to serve free food and made it a reality. My name is Ruth Corinne Beckford. I was born in Oakland, California, December 7th, 1925, at the Providence Hospital on what we call Peel Hill. Ruth Beckford wasn't a revolutionary. She wasn't even a Black Panther. She was a dancer. And she'd already been working with kids from all over Oakland for about two decades when Panthers co-founder Bobby Seale approached her. We got together, and the Black Panthers met at my church, St. Augustine's Episcopal Church, and Father, the Reverend Father Earl Neal was considered the spiritual advisor for the Panthers. It was at that church that the Panthers' free breakfast program originated with Father Neal, Bobby Seale, and I. Here's a little peek behind the curtain of the program that had the FBI so freaked out. Again, Ruth Beckford. Every morning at 6 o'clock, I went to the PTA at Durant School, which is two blocks from my church, and got recruits of parents to come and assist with this. And I went to a nutritionist and got her to donate how to do menus so that every Monday was this, every Tuesday was this, every Wednesday. So the kids got a real variety of nourishment. And uh, everything was volunteer. I would go, every day I'd go with my begging bowl and get stuff donated. And at 6 o'clock every morning at St. Augustine's Church in the downstairs kitchen, we would cook breakfast at 6 o'clock and serve about 100 kids every morning and get them served and out of there into school. And the principal came and said, you don't know what this program has done. Our kids are not falling asleep. They're not crying with stomach pains and all this stuff. So he could see the change with kids leaving with a good hot breakfast under their belt. After starting in Oakland, the Panthers launched dozens of breakfast programs all over the country. And the Panthers' other service projects used the breakfasts as a model. They ended up running health clinics, free clothing and shoes programs, community ambulances, all kinds of stuff that people needed but weren't getting from the government. Remember, this was during the Cold War, and J. Edgar Hoover realized that these black radicals were making America look bad by getting all this publicity for helping underserved communities. Long story short, Hoover set out to destroy the Panthers. 
with the breakfast program specifically, the FBI would harass people who donated to the program and lean on local authorities to crack down on code violations at kitchens and halls where they were making and serving the food. You get the picture. But the legacy of what started in a church on 29th and Telegraph still lives on. To me, that was a positive program that the Panthers originated and never got credit for because from the free breakfast program of the Panthers, then you began to see free meals all across the country for school children, free lunches and free stuff. And the free breakfast program really got that started. In the early 70s, federal support for school breakfast programs expanded massively as a direct response to what the Panthers were doing. And the federal programs continue to feed more than 10 million students every day. Okay, so why am I talking about this now? Well, Ruth Beckford passed away last month on May 8th, 2019, at the age of 93. And something about the timing of Miss Beckford's death really affected me. On the corner of 14th and Alice, across the street from the Malanga Cascalord Center for the Arts, there's a giant mural of Miss Beckford dancing. I mean, she's huge, probably 40 feet high. It's stunning. And this mural isn't just celebrating Miss Beckford, but all kinds of artists and activists and musicians who played important roles in Oakland history. And that mural, which the Community Rejuvenation Project spent hundreds of hours researching and painting. It's getting covered up right now. Developers already put a big fence around it, and pretty soon it'll be blocked forever by a new building. Anyway, I guess the symbolism of losing that mural and Miss Beckford at the same time just made me want to learn more about her. And what I found kind of blew my mind. She started dancing professionally at the age of eight, and never slowed down. She broke through all kinds of racial and cultural barriers in the dance world. She mentored thousands of young girls. She wrote books and plays and acted in movies directed by her good friend, Maya Angelou. Uh, she designed costumes and jewelry, helped homeless people get off the streets, supported earthquake victims, taught in women's prisons. Oh, and <laughs> allegedly she helped popularize a very iconic hairstyle. I remember she was the first person that I saw with uh, a natural. That's the voice of Deborah Vaughn, a lifelong friend of Miss Beckford's and co-founder of Oakland's Dimensions Dance Theater. I don't know if she was the absolute first, but she was the first person that I saw. And I think that was another thing that was so striking about her as, a, you know, this statuesque woman, really dark skin, beautiful, and this really closely cropped haircut. I think for young people who have grown up seeing people with natural haircuts, mm -hmm. that might not sound like that big of a deal, but I know that back then it was quite a big deal. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, what did it mean for a woman to walk down the street wearing that kind of hairstyle? Why was that a statement? I just think it was unusual because that's not what people were doing at that time. People were, they were getting their hair pressed. I heard that some people maybe even disapproved of that haircut, like it was uh, not proper or something like that. Mm -hmm. I think it caused quite a bit of, you know, attention. But then what could you say? She was still beautiful. It was her hair. Plus it <laughs> caught on, and then pretty soon everyone was mm -hmm. doing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly.
Throughout her life, Miss Beckford really enjoyed inspiring people. And my hope is that today's episode will help carry on that legacy. This isn't about mourning. It's about celebrating. I've been blessed. Good friends, good family. So there's no regrets back there because I had a full, fun life coming up. You know, I'm a risk taker. If it don't work, it's okay. I say you should never die and not have done your secret ambition. If you have to go sneak off into the mountains and do it, accomplish your secret ambition. Miss Beckford had a secret ambition, of course, and yes, she accomplished it. But if you want to find out what it was, you've got to stay tuned. I'm your host, Liam O'Donohue, and you're listening to East Bay Yesterday. Miss Beckford, I'd like to know how you got involved in dance. Hmm, okay. I got involved before I knew any better. I started, my mother and my family said that as an infant in the crib, I would respond if there was music at any time. I would just move in perfect rhythm. So at age three, I started studying dance, taking private lessons from Florel Batsford, who was one of the top dance teachers in the Bay Area, then in Oakland. That voice you heard asking the question at the beginning is Penny Peake. Penny did about five hours of oral history interviews with Miss Beckford back in the early 1990s. So most of the tape you'll be hearing today comes from that. Thank you to the Museum of Performance and Design for giving me permission on those. I've also included some clips from a much shorter interview that happened about 12 years ago at the African American Museum and Library at Oakland. Big shout out to AMLO. Okay, let's go back to the early 1930s and Miss Beckford's very first dance teacher. She catered to the very wealthy white community. And I was her only African-American student. And because we could not afford those lessons, my mother, with her creativity, told her that she would clean the studio. After hours, no one would ever see. And they, I know those people wondered, how do they pay this fee? But my mother would clean the studio. When I got bigger, I would go and empty the ashtrays, and be a part of that. Young Ruth learned all kinds of styles, from hula to tap dance. And pretty soon she was performing at iconic venues like the Grand Lake, the Paramount, and the Fox Theater. I became professional at age eight. I mean, I was paid to perform at eight years old. All over the Bay Area. There was a lot of vaudeville in those days, so entertainment was very... You know, live shows was the thing, and I used to be in a lot of live shows, and I was paid to perform. At eight years old, I would get my money. Of course, getting paid wasn't the only reason she danced. I am an exhibitionist. I enjoy the applause. I enjoy being on stage and expressing myself and getting immediate uh, response back, and I love it. Even though Miss Beckford grew up during the Great Depression, she has fond memories of her childhood. She used to love roller skating around Lake Merritt with her friends. But then something happened on her 16th birthday that would change Oakland and the rest of the world forever. 
But World War II, I was 16 the day the war started. And I had a sweet 16 big birthday party. <laughs> big party, boy, that was fabulous. And then here came the war. And so growing up through World War II, this was serious war. But uh, a lot of Japanese kids in our neighborhood, our neighborhood was very integrated. And so all of our Japanese friends leaving, you know, one day they're there, the next day they're all gone. It was like science fiction. Losing our, our Japanese friends was, I mean, we would cry and cry because, oh, so-and-so's gone, so just wiped out, gone. And that just broke our hearts because we'd grown up with these kids. Miss Beckford's friends had been sent away to mass incarceration camps for Japanese Americans. She never saw any of them ever again. Food rationing and stamps to get gas. And I remember when I graduated from tech, our, our senior yearbook was real thin because there was a paper shortage. And it was a real different uh, time, plus always the threat of being bombed because we were right on the coast. And we had an army base here, the navy base here. The, we had everything here. So there was blackouts. The sirens would go off. And it would just, the city would just get silent. Every light was out. People would just talk soft. Because you didn't know if it was going to be a bomb coming. So it was a scary time. And then MacArthur Boulevard, where I, li- where I grew up and, was, and lived all my life, was the main street for all the soldiers and sailors to go overseas. So all the convoys would pass in front of our house, and we'd go out and wave all these 50 trucks, truckloads of soldiers driving down the street, and they'd all wave. That was their last wave for many of those boys. Young Ruth got to do much more than just wave at some of those young men coming through Oakland on their way to the war. So the Defermery Mansion now, which is on 16th and Adeline Street, that was the USO. And that's where all the black soldiers and sailors and the Air Force and everybody came. So we just had a grand time. At 17, boy, we could go dance every night, weekends. So we'd say, oh, we want to go out with a sailor or a soldier, because they'd just be, we'd have five and six men. I mean, it was great for the ego growing up. We had all these men just so glad to talk to somebody. So we had a good time. Did you fall in love with the soldiers? Oh, yes. We'd fall in love with the soldiers and sailors every other week. And Brad, our heart would break. You know, they'd leave and go, oh, I'll wait for you. I'll wait for you. Where's the next party? <laughs> so, oh, yes, we would fall in love. And who was this one and that one? Oh, boy. Miss Beckford got her first big break from Catherine Dunham, who's been called the queen mother of black dance. Even though Miss Dunham was not looking for new dancers, young Ruth showed up at Dunham's show and talked her way into an audition. She nailed it and hit the road on her first tour. Dunham wanted Ruth to stay with her company after the tour, but Ruth's family wanted her to get an education, so she enrolled at Cal. But she didn't stop dancing. She joined the university's dance group and also started working with San Francisco's most prestigious modern dance companies. Right away, she was a star. I know when I was with Ann Halpin and Will Lathrop's dance company in San Francisco, and I was the only black, the first black and modern dance company in this area. There was no, modern dance was still new to whites. And I always had feature roles in the company. 
And because I had already danced, so I was a pro going in. I would come out on the stage. I'll never forget it. The, they called it the Herbs Theater. Now it was named something else then. And I came out on stage, and we were doing a Bach thing. And I was in this gorgeous sort of bronze tat. It was a beautiful dress. And I came out on stage, and you could hear the audience go, ah, what is this, you know? And, I, and we, I would get that all the time. But I would just say, hey, it's no problem with me. I know I can dance, and I'm going to show you, you know. Or when I was at Cal, and we would, and I was in the orchestra's uh, Modern Dance Honor Society, and we would go as a school to different schools, you know. And I'd be the only black girl in the class of a hundred girls or something. We'd go to Stanford or Mills or something, and I'd be the only one. But it never bothered me because I knew I was going to dance well. So the pressure to be good was always there. The pressure of being the only black walking into a room with all white girls, all white teachers. Uh, if I hadn't had the kind of support at home where I knew who I was and proud in being black, I don't know what it would have done. Miss Beckford's family raised her to be a proud black woman. And her mentor, Catherine Dunham, taught her to demand respect as a black performer. In the next phase of her career, Miss Beckford would pass these lessons on to many, many young women over several generations. Her career as an educator started by launching the very first modern dance program run through a Parks and Rec district. It was for kids, and it was free. Because there was no one ahead of me, I could set up my own philosophy for it. And my philosophy was only one will be a dancer out of all these hundreds of girls, but they all have to be women. So life skills, I would always slip into the dance. We'll talk more about that life skills part in a minute, but first, let's go back to that conversation with Deborah Vaughn, an Oakland native who started taking Miss Beckford's dance classes back when she was 13 years old. Miss Beckford talks about how she started the first modern dance company in a park district mm -hmm. setting in anywhere in the United States. Mm -hmm. When she says, we learned modern dance, what does that mean? What exactly is modern dance? Hmm. That's a good question. I think that you know, when people speak about modern dance, it really doesn't have limits. It could be anything that you want it to be. There are, you know, aspects of modern dance that are based on certain dance techniques. Then there are aspects of modern dance that people are just exploring creative ways of expressing themselves. It can be anything. This limitless form of expression, it was a perfect medium for what Miss Beckford was trying to do. She started in 1947 with two classes, teaching about 70 girls. My philosophy, as I had set it up in the recreation department, was that you train the whole person and by the way we dance. Dance was not the goal to raise great dancers, so that the most ill-coordinated little girl would feel she was terrific in dance class. And modern dance gave you that freedom if you said you were a tree, you could be a tree. Whereas in African Haitian dance, there was a way to do it. In tap dance, there was a way to do it. You either did the time step or you didn't do it. So days that we didn't dance, we would talk about things. And I used to tell my staff, never fear you have to dance. When Miss Beckford stepped down from running the program about two decades later, there were about 700 girls enrolled in all the different levels of these dance classes which eventually expanded to include high school students. It's easy to understand why these classes attracted girls from all over Oakland. I'll let Ms. Beckford explain. 
And she's got quite a bit to say about all this. So I'm going to take a step back, and I'll see you guys in a few minutes. I would never let the girls choreograph a dance of a story that was already printed and made up. They always had to create their own story, do their own choreography, six years up. So I taught them this, the point of that was to teach them how to have public speaking skills and how to stand up in front of the class and express themselves on how they were going to do their dance and then teach them how to be fair and vote on what dance they were going to do for their concert. And that was my point, was to give some uh, poise and self-confidence to the girls. Why did you have only girls in your classes at the rec center? Because I felt girls were left out. Now remember, this is 1947, gymnastics hadn't gotten popular and all that. So girls had no physical outlet. They didn't play sports. Also, I kept it restricted to girls because we could be more open in our conversation if they didn't have a little boy sitting next to them. So I would be able to talk to them about things that wouldn't embarrass them if boys were there. The first activity of the club would always be a slumber party. Oh, I can think, oh, Lordy, those slumber parties. My philosophy was that if you stayed up, because you always stayed up all night, <laughs> is that if you spent the night together, when we left that next day, they were friends. Because remember now, these are girls from all over the city auditioning to get in the club, so they were strangers. But by that next day, they were all friends and Oh, they were a family then. So that uh, the slumber party and we would always do something, go bowling or ice skate or something before that. Uh, I would always ask them, what have you never done you'd like to do? I've never ice skated. We'd go ice skating. Or I've never bowled wheel. And then once a year in the summer, we would, I would take them camping, cooking out, sleeping out, up in Camp Chabot, which was a recreational camp. So these were all experiences to help them become women. And they danced too. And some of them became professional dancers, but that was not my goal. Besides everything she just mentioned, Miss Beckford did so much more with these girls. She taught them to sew their own costumes and made them do volunteer days at senior centers and rewarded them by taking them out to dinner at swanky restaurants. Ruth Beckford never had biological children, but she did have plenty of daughters. I feel if I had had children, I could not have been the mentor to the hundreds and hundreds of young girls that I mentored because I had the time and the energy to give extra time to them. And so a lot of the girls would say, but you were our mother. I said, but I didn't have the dirty work. <laughs> I got all the good part. And so uh, I'm very close to so many young ladies and I'll be standing in the Safeway supermarket line and some young lady will come up with hair as gray as mine and say, you taught me when I was a little girl. And they'll say, and I can still keep my fingernails clean because you told us keep our fingernails clean. So that's payback. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because she could do things with her body that, you know, most people could not do. It was amazing to watch her. I mean, the grace strength, power combined into one body was pretty amazing to see. I mean, it, she was like a showstopper. Whenever like she would dance, you, you would just like, wow. People didn't just flock to Miss Beckford's classes because of her athleticism. She was also teaching something that was totally new for most people in the Bay Area. 
at that time, I had the only African Asian dance classes, and I would not take over 30 in a class, so the lines would start forming. The drumming that you're hearing in the background right now is from one of those classes. On registration day, it got so that people, it was almost embarrassing, it was a great compliment, but it was very strange. They would bring sleeping bags and camp out to get to be the first 30 to get in the classes. So it was like serious, those who got there first. At my studio, you had to wear black or white leotards. You could not wear all this stuff. I said, I don't want to see any sweats in here because I'm not going to strain my eyes to see is your knee straight. And I want you to look like a performing group. I said, because we would let uh, the public could come in and watch the advanced class, not the others, so that you had the feeling of performing. And the audience would come and sit down, and they knew don't say a word. They were very forward coming <laughs> to get to watch. And they would sit there quiet. But the class looked sharp, because they were in black or white. The drummers always had three, or f I had three drummers I paid every night. But we'd have eight and 10 drummers who came, because this was their only opportunity to drum for dance. So it was like a show. And of course, I was dancing too. Keep in mind that when Miss Beckford started teaching Afro-Haitian techniques in the 1950s, this was before the rise of the black arts movement and ethnic studies. When I talked to Deborah Vaughn, she emphasized that these classes weren't just about learning the moves. It sounds like you're saying dance is really a language that is very useful for sharing uh, cultural histories and wisdom and the lessons from your ancestors. Mm -hmm. It is. Mm -hmm. And I think that dance today can also be a way of um, sharing that history with the generations to come, just so that they know about it, respect it, and so that they'll be able to pass it on. When you look at um, Haiti, that came about through a protest, but a lot of the protests had the dancing, the drumming. I mean, that's just throughout the African diaspora how, you know, dance was used. Besides teaching her students, Miss Beckford was also educating audiences all over the country. Out of that advanced class, I formed my company. And I choreographed everything. There was no NEA and stuff then. And so um, organizations would hire us. And from then on, we just did all the Cal, all the campuses, UCLA, USC, all that. So we only performed in universities and colleges primarily because I had done great amounts of research on our dances and I thought it would be wasted on Vegas. You know, I could have gone to Vegas and put on a tassel and made a fortune. <laughs> and, uh, but my choice, I was always very clear on what I wanted to do with my career. So we performed in the universities and colleges or like uh, theater houses where people were accustomed to come and see a series performing. And we were very successful. We were the only company out here doing it. To develop her choreography, Miss Beckford approached dance like an anthropologist. She would go to Haiti for months at a time and study the folklore as well as the dances. The real voodoo was what I based my works on. So that where the, a real voodoo ceremony may last all night and the next day I would condense it down. So where they may just go around and around and around the, the post, 
Of course, you can't do that in theater, so you'd have to combine the circles with the diagonals and things to make it a good choreographic piece. And still, though the basic storyline would still be authentic voodoo. So that's how I incorporated the creative aspect with the authentic. This is why Miss Beckford performed at universities instead of nightclubs. She didn't want to exploit the culture she was reinterpreting. She wanted people to treat Afro-Haitian dance as seriously as ballet or any other European style. But when she wasn't performing, sure, sometimes she just danced for fun. She loved to bring all kinds of people together at her studio and have these wild shindigs. The studio was mixed race and the parties were mixed race and everybody had a grand time. Everybody would just dance. They would just dance till they were just dripping wet because Mambo and Cha Cha was hot stuff then and everybody was doing it. And they just loved it. You know, everybody danced with everybody. Nobody thought anything. You might be wondering if Miss Beckford ever got tired of teaching dance to kids and adults and running a dance company and throwing dance parties. The answer is yes. First, she retired from performing in 1961. She wanted to go out at the top of her game. Her last show was beyond sold out. People who couldn't get seats were standing in the hallways just so they could hear her dance one last time. Then in 1967, she turned the Oakland Parks Department dance classes over to one of her former students. And a few years after that, she quit teaching dance altogether. So in 1975, I said, okay, I've, I've ended that career of dance. I had done it, it was successful, I was blessed. And I had a good time and, and touched a lot of lives in a lot of different ways. And it was very gratifying, and now I'm through with that. Also, you begin to not grow yourself. I knew I could never be any better teacher than I was. I knew I could never be any better dancer than I was. You know, I, my leg was never going to go any higher. It was never going to... So then you're just in neutral. So I said, I need to go learn something else. Miss Beckford's post-dancing career could be a whole nother episode. So I'm just going to give you the highlights. She wrote, starred in, and produced a trilogy of plays about an older woman's romance with a younger man. Yes, it was semi-autobiographical. She also wrote a biography about her mentor, Catherine Dunham. And she wrote an inspirational book for middle-aged women called Still Groovin'. And she even wrote a few cookbooks with recipes like, um, here's one, pork chops baptized in gravy. Damn, that sounds good. Uh, she also acted in a few Hollywood movies and a PBS show directed by her friend Maya Angelou. Uh, Miss Beckford learned how to work with stained glass and started making her own jewelry. She volunteered to teach at women's prisons and shelters. She worked for an agency called Oakland Earthquake Support, helping people get back on their feet after the 89 quake. Okay, I think you get it. She did a lot. Even though people around Oakland continued to call her the dance lady for decades, she was too busy accomplishing new goals to dwell on her past successes. So, no, I don't, I don't miss dance at all. From 1928 to 1975 is enough to be burned out. Plus, it's not like she left the dance world altogether. A lot of her former students, like Deborah Vaughn, went on to form their own companies or run college dance programs. And Miss Beckford still caught shows once in a while, but she wasn't always impressed with the more um, experimental stuff. 
I know one dance, I'll never forget this dance. There was a slide on the stage in a bucket. And they would then they would walk around in these strange clothes and stuff and get walk up a ladder and crack an egg and the egg would slide down and plop in the bucket. Please. That went on for <laughs> that dance was so long. I could not I couldn't believe it. I thought this is too strange. <laughs> I was too strange. I'll never forget that dance. One of my other daughters, Deborah Vaughn, I was getting ready to celebrate my 80th birthday with a cruise through the Panama Canal with 20 of my friends. And she gave a little pre-party and she had all of the ladies say how they met me. Well, it was a revelation to me because some of them said, you didn't know when you met me, but I remember this. And I said, this is better than a memorial, which I will not have, by the way. Funerals and memorials, I said, give me my stuff now and just scatter me out under the Golden Gate Bridge and forget it because I will have enjoyed every day. So my friends are my real joy. Deborah Vaughn was with Miss Beckford on the night she passed away, and she told me, <laughs> well, her exact words were that Miss Beckford rode life until the wheels came off. And yes, her final wishes were honored. No funeral, ashes scattered in the bay. Oh, and one last thing, because I want to end on a high note. I said at the beginning that you'd hear about Miss Beckford's secret ambition. Here you go, folks. I've always thought it would be just so wonderful to be a singer. So I went to Merritt College and Laney College and took voice and took the class and everything. And they gave this big concert Merritt did over here at the Calvin Simmons. And they had a big band and I sang a solo and I wore a dress split up to here and down to here. And I had a boss. And if no one out here enjoys it, I'm having a grand time. I sang that song and the people, and the thing, it was so funny because I said, I was doing what I had always thought would be fun to do. Oh, I had a grand time. So I've had my secret ambition. But I say people should never, you know, you shouldn't be too shy to do it. Go do it. Just go do it. If you said, I've always wanted to ride a motorbike up a hill, get on a motorbike and go up the hill. You know, get that, just get it and do it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donohue. If you want to see photos related to this episode, check out eastbayyesterday.com. And to all the people supporting East Bay Yesterday through Patreon, I'm so very, very grateful to each and every one of you. And I'm looking forward to meeting some of you in person at that upcoming walking tour for Patreon supporters. Oh, and I've also got a free event that's open to the public coming up on June 17th, all about the history of Emeryville. Check out my website for details. Okay, thank you to everyone who made this episode possible, especially Penny Peak, Kirsten Tanaka at the Museum of Performance and Design, Brenda Payton, the Oakland Library's History Room, the African American Museum and Library at Oakland, Gene Anderson and the Oakland Wiki, and everybody involved with the Alice Street Mural, 
Shout out to Pancho Pescador and Desi Mundo of the Community Rejuvenation Project. You can learn more about that project at alicestreetfilm.com. And if you want to hear more about Deborah Vaughn's dance company, check out Dimensions Dance Theater. Also, don't forget to follow East Bay Yesterday on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, do me a favor. If you like this episode, please spread the word about it and tag me if you do. Even if you just tell one person, I'd be grateful. Okay, you can subscribe to East Bay Yesterday on pretty much all the major podcast apps. Music for this episode came from Tabin Anatech, Chris Zabriskie, Louis Armstrong, and the drummers from one of Miss Beckford's classes from the early 1970s. The theme song music came from Anatech. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back very soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday.